Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1124, with a release and air date of Saturday, September 12, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1124 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Brazil's telecom operator Anatel proposes to end all amateur radio testing in that country. The National Council of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators met this week via teleconference. We will have a full report. Preparations are now underway for World Radio Communication Conference 2023. The FCC announces an updated list of amateur service club call sign administrators. The K1USN Radio Club announces a new weekly slow-speed CW contest. A jury in California returns a guilty verdict in the 2018 murder of an amateur radio operator. Amateur radio assists in two rescue operations, and a ham radio wireless network camera detects the start of a wildfire in Washington State. An amateur in Arkansas is planning a 24-hour television channel all about amateur radio. And scientists seem to have discovered that plants seem to grow better on 40 meters. We will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, asks if you are afraid or worried about up-and-coming technologies. And the FCC has recently ruled to do away with cable cards. Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, asks the question, what is so different using software for signal processing? He'll have the answer. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill will present part two, the final part, on the history of amateur radio repeaters. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about how to stay safe when climbing with others on a tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio, where fall is definitely in the air, I'm George, W2XBS in Albany, New York. And reporting from the studios of the Museum of Science and Technology in the heart of Armory Square in downtown Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from New York State's Catskill Mountains, where the trees are already changing color, and the overnight low tonight will be 46 degrees, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where Autumn is paying us a brief visit this week, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. 
Leading off your news this week, the Brazilian National Telecommunications Agency, or Anatel, has proposed to end amateur radio certificate exams for all classes, replacing the current system with free access to the initial Class C license, access to Class B for those presenting a technical course certificate in telecommunications or similar, or who have three years of experience as a Class C licensee, and to a Class A for those who present a certificate of higher education in telecommunications or who have three years of experience as a Class B licensee. The proposal suggests eliminating different prefixes for each state and retaining license class prefixes. There would no longer be any special call signs. Brazil's IARU member society, Labrae, suggested that the proposal flies in the face of international regulatory consensus related to amateur radio and is contrary to Labrae's thinking with regard to minimum licensing requirements. It also does not square with Anatel's request for support from Labrae in the revision of Brazil's amateur radio regulations. Labrae has requested a meeting with Anatel to discuss the proposal. As preparations for the World Radio Communication Conference 2023 go forward, the International Amateur Radio Union, or IARU, continues its efforts to protect amateur and amateur satellite allocations. The International Conference, which generally takes place every four years, is sponsored by the International Telecommunication Union. The International Amateur Radio Union participated in the first online meeting of Project Team A of the WRC 23 CEPT Conference Preparatory Group, reporting this week that a good start was made on items of interest to the amateur and amateur satellite services. Agenda Item 1.12 addresses studies stemming from WRC 19 that are now underway to consider a new secondary allocation to the Earth Exploration Satellite Service for spaceborne radar sounders in the 40 to 50 MHz range, taking into account the protection of incumbent services, including in adjacent bands, which would include 6 meters. A handful of countries have also allocated secondary amateur bands in the vicinity of 40 MHz. The WRC-19 Resolution 656, which ordered the studies, noted that spaceborne active RF sensors can provide unique information on physical properties of the Earth and that spaceborne active remote sensing requires specific frequency ranges depending on the physical phenomena to be observed. Spaceborne radars are intended to operate only in uninhabited or sparsely populated areas with particular focus on deserts and polar fields between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. local time. Agenda item 1.14 addresses the Earth Exploration Satellite Service in the range 231.5 to 250 gigahertz. The amateur and amateur satellite services have a primary allocation at 248 to 250 gigahertz and a secondary allocation at 241 to 248 gigahertz. Agenda item 9.1 will consider and approve the report of the director of the ITU Radio Communication Bureau on the activities of the radio communication sector since WRC 19. This includes a review of the amateur service and the amateur satellite service allocations in the frequency band 1.240 to 1.300 MHz to determine if additional measures are required to ensure protection of the radio navigation satellite that's space-to-earth service operating in the same band. 
The 1.240 to 1.300 MHz band is allocated worldwide to the amateur service on a secondary basis and the amateur satellite service Earth to Space may operate in the band 1.260 to 1.270 MHz. The primary concern is the potential for interference to the Galileo Global Navigation Satellite System in ITU Region 1, which encompasses Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Instances of interference to one of the RNSS channels from amateur operations have been reported. The International Amateur Radio Union has said it's prepared to fully cooperate in any studies. The International Amateur Radio Union participated in the initial meeting of Project Team C of the WRC-23 CEPT group, where the preliminary CEPT position on international studies on coexistence between amateur service and RNSS was discussed. Agenda item 9.1a concerns space weather sensors, which must be protected by regulation without placing constraints on incumbent services. The scope of this topic is wide and could cover HF to EHF spectrum, the IARU said. Until studies are progressed, it is not certain how the amateur and amateur satellite services might be impacted. Agenda item 9.1c was proposed by a few countries interested in the possible use of mobile technologies and frequency bands allocated to the fixed service. In practice, amateur service allocations in the range 430 MHz to 250 GHz could be affected where there is a primary allocation to the fixed service and a secondary allocation to the amateur service, the IARU said, citing 2.3 GHz and 3.4 GHz as examples. Last summer, France raised a proposal to consider 144 to 146 MHz as a primary allocation to the aeronautical mobile service as part of a broader consideration of spectrum allocated to that service. The International Amateur Radio Union pledged to continue to represent the amateur and amateur satellite services throughout the electromagnetic spectrum at meetings of regulatory bodies during the coming months. If you are able to do so, please support your IARU member society in any national preparatory WRC 23 events. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, reports that the National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators, or NCVEC, held its annual meeting via teleconference on August 21st. Soma is the National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators Vice Chair. NCVEC Chair Larry Pollack, NB5X, presided at the 35th annual meeting. The NCVEC functions to facilitate communications between the FCC and volunteer examiner coordinators. Representatives of all 14 FCC-certified VECs took part in the conference, while nine FCC staff members were on hand. FCC Enforcement Bureau Special Counsel Laura Smith advised the VEC delegates 
that the FCC has been on lockdown since March and that staff members will be teleworking indefinitely. This includes staff at FCC headquarters in Washington, D.C., the Gettysburg, Pennsylvania location, and the other field offices. Smith said field engineers aren't going out unless the issue involves safety or if lives are in danger. FCC Mobility Division Deputy Chief Tom Derenge explained that one of his areas of responsibility is processing paperwork for applicants answering yes to the basic qualification question that asks if they've ever been convicted of a felony. Derenge said that paperwork from his office goes to the FCC General Counsel and the Investigations and Hearings Division. Those divisions are responsible for resolution in non-compliant conduct. Paperwork in these instances may take a while to be processed, but the FCC tries to handle it as efficiently as possible, Derenge said. He noted that applicants may request confidentiality for all documents attached to files, not just BQQ exhibits. Derenge recommended that volunteer examiner coordinators make it clear to applicants that their address will be public information when the new license is issued. He suggested advising that an alternative address, such as a P.O. box or work address, would be acceptable. Derenge pointed out that once an address is in the FCC database, it's nearly impossible to be permanently removed. Dorothy Stiffelmeyer, the Associate Division Chief of the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau of Technology Systems and Innovation Division, told the VECs that new license applicants should create an FCC user account and register their social security number in the FCC Commission registration system, known as CORS, before attending exam sessions. Registrants will be assigned a Federal Registration Number, or FRN, which will be used in all license transactions with the FCC. She explained that auto-registration in CORS at exam sessions using a social security number will be going away. In addition, since no mail is being sent because of the pandemic, applicants will not receive their auto-created password and FCC registration number and will not be able to access the Universal Licensing System, the FCC License Records Database. Going forward, she said, VECs should make sure all applicants have an FCC registration number before exam day. Remote administration of amateur radio exam sessions was the hot topic of discussion, Soma said. Since April 1st, ARRLVEC, W5YIVEC, and the Greater Los Angeles Amateur Radio Group, VEC, have remotely tested more than 4,000 applicants using video conferencing and online examinations. Proof of concept and procedural information were discussed for the benefit of other volunteer examiner coordinators that might be interested in pursuing remote testing. Exam candidates can search for upcoming remote online examination dates on the HAM study website. Raul Anders, K3RA, who chairs the National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators Question Pool Committee, reminded the conference that no new question pools will be released until 2022. A new technician class question pool will go into effect on July 1st of that year. Anders invited public input for any of the question pools. 
Conference attendees discussed the possibility of an in-person annual meeting next year, depending on the pandemic and FCC staff availability. SOMA and Assistant ARRL VEC Manager Amanda Grimaldi, N1NHL, represented the ARRL at the virtual gathering. The 14 volunteer examiner coordinators taking part in the teleconference were the Anchorage Amateur Radio Club VEC, the ARRL VEC, Central America VEC, Golden Empire Amateur Radio Society VEC, the Greater Los Angeles Amateur Radio Group VEC, the Jefferson Amateur Radio Club VEC, the Laurel Amateur Radio Club VEC, the Milwaukee Radio Amateurs Club VEC, MOCAN Regional Council of Amateur Radio Organizations VEC, the San Diego Amateur Radio Council VEC, the Sunnyvale VEC, Western Carolina Amateur Radio Society VEC, the W4VEC Group, and the W5YI VEC. During the meeting, the National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators re-elected current leadership representatives to new terms. Larry Pollock, NB5X, of W5YI VEC, will serve a 13th term as chairman, and Maria Soma, AB1FM, of ARRL VEC, was elected for a sixth term as National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators Vice Chairman. Willard Sitton, W4HZD, from WCARS VEC, will remain as treasurer, while Steve Emery, N4SET, also from WCARS VEC, will continue to serve as his assistant. Michelle Simbala, WK3X, of LARC VEC, will continue as secretary and custodian of the instructions to the volunteer examiner coordinators, and SOMA will continue as assistant to the custodian of the instructions and rules reporter. The five current question pool committee members were reappointed. Mike Mestrolio, AJ6NJ, Ralph Roberts, W5VE, Maria Soma, AB1FM, Larry Pollock, NB5X, and Chairman Raul Anders, K3RA. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. On January 5, 2001, the Federal Communications Commission issued a public notice announcing that it would only accept applications for new, modification of, or renewal of amateur service club and military recreation stations licenses from a club station call sign administrator. Specifically, the public notice clarified that to obtain new amateur service club station or military recreation station license, to modify or renew an amateur service club station or military recreation license, or to modify a radio amateur civil emergency service station license, an operator must file its application with one of the club station call sign administrators identified by the FCC. In this public notice, we had a fourth club station call sign administrator. 
On October 21, 1998, the FCC adopted a report and order reinstituting the use of volunteer organizations for the process of applications for the Amateur Radio Service Club, Military Recreation, and RACES station licenses. On January 3, 2000, the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau announced that beginning March 1, 2000, they would accept requests from orgs interested in processing applications. Each selected organization would be designated as a club station call sign administrator. A club station call sign administrator is an amateur radio organization that has tax-exempt status under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 and agrees to provide voluntary, uncompensated, and unreimbursed services for processing applications for club, military, recreation, and races station licenses. It must agree to submit applications to the FCC in an electronic batch file to retain the application information for at least 15 months and to make the application information available to the FCC upon request. The club station call sign administrator may collect all necessary information in any manner of its choosing, including creating its own forms. In response to the January 3, 2000 public notice, we granted requests from three amateur radio orgs asking to be designated as club station call sign administrators, and on August 5th of 2020, the Bureau received a request from the Anchorage Amateur Radio Club Volunteer Examinator Coordinator to be an authorized club station call sign administrator, demonstrating tax-exempt status, compliance with the club station call sign administrator requirements, and completion of a pilot auto-grant filing project. Thus, consistent with the procedures outlined in the January 3rd public notice, the FCC announces the additional designation of Anchorage ARC VEC as a club station call site administrator. The updated list of orgs authorized as club call site administrators to electronically file applications for these purposes with the FCC is now as follows. The American Radio Relay League, the Anchorage Amateur Radio Club Volunteer Examiner Coordinator, the W4VEC Volunteer Examiners Club of America, and the W5YI Anchorage Amateur Radio Club Volunteer Examinator Coordinator. For further information, contact the FCC Mobility Division, Wireless Telecommunications Bureau. The K1USN Radio Club in Massachusetts is launching a new weekly, hour-long, slow-speed contest, the K1USN SST. With more details on the new weekly contest, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this report from League Headquarters in Newington. The inaugural session will be on Monday, September 14th from 0 hours to 01 UTC. That's Sunday, September 13th in the North American time zones. K1USN trustee Pi Pew, K1RV, said the decision to embark on a sponsorship of a new operating event involved surveying some 2,000 radio amateurs to gauge their enthusiasm for the event. Pew said the club worked with a group of CW Ops members within the club with the blessing of the CW Ops CW Academy Advisor Group. CW Ops is not involved in sponsoring the contest. Although predicated on the desires of the CW Academy community, Pew stressed that the weekly activity will be open to all who are looking to improve their CW skills. Participants are advised to be patient, supportive, and willing to slow down as necessary. Suggested frequencies are 3532 to 3539 kilohertz on 80 meters, 
7032 to 7039 kilohertz on 40 meters and 14032 to 14039 kilohertz on 20 meters. Stations exchange names and states, provinces, or countries. The survey was sent to all 2,000 recent CW Academy graduates, Pew told the ARRL. We sent it using MailChimp and were able to obtain a detailed breakout on the survey questions, which we have forwarded to the CWA Advisory Group. The 800 who responded indicated an overwhelming need for some sort of slow-speed activity as a follow-up to the CW Academy. It was a lot of work, but we hope this will prove to be a valuable tool within the CW community, Pew said. The SST is also for operators who currently participate in regular CWT sessions, but only as search and pounce operators. The weekly 20-word-per-minute or slower SSTs can build confidence to find open frequencies and begin calling CQ, Pew suggested. An N1MM Logger Plus user-defined contest file is available. A United States Marine Corps lieutenant has been found guilty in the beating death of a well-known amateur radio operator in his Murrieta, California home. A jury in Riverside County found First Lieutenant Curtis Lee Kruger guilty of assault and second-degree murder in the 2018 killing of Henry Allen Strange, WA6RXZ, according to John Hall, the district attorney's public information officer. The ham's body was not located until June of 2018, when his remains were discovered in a shallow grave in Joshua Tree National Park. Police said the beating had also fractured his skull. The prosecutor said the 54-year-old radio operator had been in a relationship with a Marine's girlfriend at the time. She pleaded guilty last year to being an accessory after the fact, and received a sentence of 10 months in jail and three years probation for the felony. Kruger is scheduled to be sentenced on October 16th. He faces 16 years to life in prison. According to newspaper reports, two dramatic rescues by repeater took place near the Nevada-California border in late August, bringing home the reality that amateur radio does indeed save lives, especially in remote areas where cell phones simply don't have the coverage. Amateur radio came to the aid of a critically injured motorcyclist at the head-on highway collision past August. Eric Barrow, KI-7WHH, called in from the scene where the victim remained on the center line of Highway 89, just west of Highway 395. Jim Sanders, AG-6IF, heard the details and called 911, staying on the air with Eric while the highway patrol responded. The road was secured from traffic while a helicopter was summoned to transport the victim. In another recent case, Hams responded to a distress call from a radio operator whose vehicle got stuck on a backcountry road. According to local news reports, Tom Foss, K6ICE, was carrying only a day's supply of water and no food when his Subaru Forester became immobilized. He called for help on the Sierra Intermountain Emergency Radio Association's NV7CV repeater. His situation was reported to police by Rick Olson, KM6DYL, and his son Ryan, KM6DYO, who were listening. Another listener, Ed Tarlow, KG7ZOP, guided Tom in finding his location coordinates on his mobile phone, and Paul Gulbro, WA6EWV, linked his repeater to widen the communications reach. Finally, search and rescue, aided by John Arbrot, 
KD7NHC was able to locate him and help get his vehicle back on the road. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. Is technology scary? I've been, one, I've been wondering this. We have a lot of movies about technology gone wild, you know, Terminator. There's a lot of movies about computers, you know, war games and... Computers just kind of, you know, gaining. I think the thing that scares us most is that, like, they'll they'll gain sentience. They'll be they'll be like aware. That's that's scary, I guess. Hal nine thousand seemed nice at the time. Seemed like a nice computer at the time. Didn't seem like a bad guy. Kind of helpful. Could play a really good game of chess. And then it locked Dave out of the pod bay door. Man, that's not cool. Man, not okay. Technology, I think, is neutral. I don't know. Is it? What do you think? I think it's neutral. I think it's, um, I think some people would argue, oh, no, technology is always good. And yeah, when it comes to things like, um, I don't know, zippers, those are good. Light bulbs, those are good. Although, I guess, you know, you can always, there's always the counter argument. There's a counter argument on zippers I won't go into, but there are some gentlemen who prefer not to wear zippers. There's also the issue of light. You know, we're not, our, our biology's not used to light between sundown and sunrise. And so, you know, all this, all this light, especially the blue kind, blue light, really bad. I mean, there's, so there's that. You could argue that there's some technology that seems pretty bad on the face of it, maybe the atom bomb, but there's still an argument there. I think it's basically neutral. It's what we do with it, right? And I was thinking about this this morning in the shower, which is my favorite technology, Thank you, Archimedes or whoever, <laughs> for figuring that one out. Nice job. We needed that. That was a that was a good uh, a good good catch. Good find. Shower bath. Actually, I've been reading a great book called Clean about the history of bathing. <laughs> he talks about the Middle Ages. He said some historians call it a thousand years without a bath. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. You know, our our, uh, our attitude toward cleanliness has shifted back and forth. Now, right now, we're all about being clean. Wash your hands, 20 seconds, right? We're all, isn't that weird? We're learning how to wash our hands like we didn't know. Like you have to have videos and new Apple Watch coming out sometime any minute now. Maybe even this week. It's got a little hand washing routine in it. Ah, I see you're washing your hands. Would you like some help? If you ask your Amazon Echo to play the hand-washing song, it'll sing a song for 20 seconds. a really terrible song. makes you want to wash your hands faster. So I think medical technology, that's probably good, right? Well, yeah. I think it's what we do with it. And that's one of the things that has made my uh, career, really. It's, It's always been the principle behind what I do. And I've been doing this now since the 70s. Wow. Long time. Uh, which is, I like technology. I love technology. I like to play with it, right? But I also think it's important to understand it 
and to use it uh, intelligently, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't think if you, if I don't, I think if you don't understand it, then it, there's a tendency to say, oh, it's magic. That's probably not a good approach. It isn't magic. It's science. Technology, if you really think about it, is scientific theory made whole, made real, which is really cool. I'll give you a good example. The theory of relativity. Now, you would think, well, that's blue sky. There's nothing that can do with that, right? We wouldn't have GPS if it weren't for the theory of relativity. GPS satellites have to account for the fact that they're moving and that they, uh, they have to adjust for the fact that they're at a different gravitational plane. So all sorts of interesting things we wouldn't be able to do without even stuff that seems so blue sky. So technology it wouldn't exist without deep scientific understanding. And that's the thing. If you don't, if you're scared of technology, well, <sighs> I understand. I don't. I don't blame you. I guess, but uh, surely we can. Uh, we can figure it out together. So I guess that's kind of my job is not is so to help you understand it, help you use it. Most importantly, because you know what, there people are going to use it against us if we don't. If we don't learn how to use it ourselves. So it's good to understand it. It is being used by governments and marketers and all sorts of ways that we may not approve of. So it's important to understand that. That's what we talk about. This is probably pretty inside baseball, but I know some of you, like me, uh, use a cable card. You know what that is, cable card? This is the thing the FCC used to, used to require. Uh, the cable companies offer you so you could use your own gear instead of having to use the cable company's box or DVR. The cable card was a really kind of neat idea. It was a credit card device for people, old timers, internet technology people going back a ways. You would recognize it as what we used to call a PCMCIA card. PCMCIA. Yeah, that, that card. It was like a credit card, but it had electronics in it. And the idea was, it was like kind of like, nowadays you could do it with a SIM card, truthfully. But this was this is an old technology, it's been around a long time. Nowadays you could do it with a SIM card. But uh, in the old days, and the cable company still seems to be living in the old days, they would make this PCMCIA card that you could... I left out an M, didn't I? PCMCIA. It's a lot of letters. Card that you would put in a device like a TiVo, for instance, and it would bake it the cable box so you didn't have to use the junky cable box the cable company provided. And you'd rent it from them. They're making a little money on it, a couple bucks, five bucks, something like that. FCC has just ruled, put out a little ruling, didn't, didn't really pay any, you know, didn't make a big deal about it. It didn't, it didn't get a lot of attention because I think it's a, it's a small market. But thank goodness for David Zatz of ZatzNotFunny.com. Because if it weren't for him, I might not even be uh, be aware of this. But I use I have three cable cards in my house, three TiVos, three cable cards. The FCC has, in effect, said we are eliminating a proceeding in which we saw a comment on the adoption of new regulations for navigation devices. That's what the FCC calls them. Devices consumers use to access video programming and other services offered over multi-channel video programming networks, cable networks, and... Here's the important part. Eliminate outdated cable card support and reporting requirements. FCC said, don't worry, the market will keep the cable card alive. I don't know. According to the FCC, there are half a million cable cards in circulation, and they drop every year about 10%. People aren't using them anymore. You know why? 
Not because everybody's saying, oh, I got to use that Comcast box or that Cox box or the Spectrum box. No, because people are saying, I just need Internet. Just give me Internet. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yesterday, Dick D. Bartol and I were talking about predictions. We had we read back my predictions from 2009, which were wildly inaccurate. But I'm going to make an, another prediction, maybe possibly wildly inaccurate. I don't even think it's going to take 10 years. Maybe it'll take uh, five. But more and more of us are going to start getting our, our content over the top, you know, through the Internet, not through the cable company. And that really, in the long run, it might make more sense for eliminating cable cards. Just eliminate cable. See, that's not what the cable company wants, but I think that may be the unintended consequence of this. Just eliminate the cable uh, and go over the Internet. And, of course, I think most cable companies realize that's the future and are starting to offer more and more on-demand stuff over the Internet. And, of course, certainly the content companies know that's the future. That's why all of a sudden there's HBO Max and Peacock and uh, Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. These are all over-the-top streaming networks where you you pay a fee a monthly fee ranging from five to fifteen dollars a month hulu is another one and you get your uh, tv from the internet will it be cheaper no no uh <laughs> i don't think so there are right now freeways there's a uh, an app maybe you've seen it called lowcast l-o-c-a-s-t that lets you watch tv your local channels free i don't know how they're getting away with this but somehow they are so there, and there's people talk, tell, always write into me say you can it's cheaper you can get Pluto or other inexpensive solutions ad supported solutions and that that's probably the case that'll probably live live on then you have to add the internet and of course the cable companies aren't dumb the price of internet access slowly going up right I called Comcast to get a, a faster service and and no bandwidth caps because they 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 cap you out at a terabyte which I run through pretty quickly and then it's what I don't know fifty dollars or 10 gigabytes or something. It's expensive. So I said, can, is there anything, no bandwidth? They said, oh, yes, we can do that for you. And I said, can, and how fast can I go? Oh, you can go to gigabit. I said, you're kidding. I had no idea you offered that. Yeah. And you know what? It's going to cost you less than you're paying right now. I said, how is that? He said, our special one-year offer. And now I remember. I did this a couple of years ago. Our special offer, it's only 99 bucks. But you forget that it's only for a year or two after the term runs out. Whoosh! It gets really expensive. Whoosh! And they figure you by this time you're you're you know you're captive. You're not either not going to notice. So I got more service, better service for less money. I'm even paying for phone service from uh, Xfinity that I don't use. I don't want an Xfinity phone. I don't want a phone at all. Who has landlines anymore? I got a cell phone. What do I need a phone for? But it's cheaper if I get the service. Figure that out. Triple play is cheaper than the double play. Oh, yeah, because in a year, whoop, goes. <laughs> so I put a little note to myself in my calendar, my future self. I should send an email to my future self. Future self, don't forget, <laughs> talk to Comcast and get them, get at the new package deal because the price is about to go way up. This is the world we live in now. This really is it. Everything is uh, is is changing from our content. In fact, you know, I talked to somebody yesterday, a couple of the watches uh, YouTube. In fact, it turns out the Trump campaign, the presidential campaign, as you know, an election a couple of months off, the uh, presidential campaign, the Trump campaign stopped TV advertising. Yeah, they were. You may remember uh, really big on YouTube last time. They stopped, not YouTube, Facebook last time. They kind of slowed that down. It's all about the YouTube now. What? 
Yeah. They're buying tons of YouTube ads. YouTube doesn't say how much they're spending, but it looks like they've they've moved most of the budget off of television, off of even Facebook, which they were masters of four years ago. And it's now now all about YouTube. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, I'm glad you were here and I'm here and I'll be here next week. And I hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. In our last installment, we traced the development of FM and repeaters from 1932 up to 1970. Since the FCC rules at that time had no provision for repeater operation, stations and repeater service were operated under the Part 97 provisions covering remote control. The FCC, in February 1970, came out with docket number 18803, which set forth the Commission's proposed repeater rules. These included small subbands set aside for repeater operation, a ban on linked, cross-band, and multi-band repeaters, a requirement for whistle-on or other tone control, and a requirement that the licensee of a repeater station be in attendance at the transmitter or at an authorized fixed control point to monitor all transmissions of the station. In regards to the two-meter band, the FCC set up the repeater subband in such a way that two-thirds of it would not be accessible to technicians. Reaction was quick and negative. The ARRL and others felt that the proposed rules were so restrictive that they might be the end of amateur repeater operation as it existed at that time. Counterproposals, far less restrictive than the FCC's, were submitted to the Commission. While amateurs waited for the revised FCC rules, another problem had to be solved. When 2-meter FM operations started in the 1960s, 146.94 had been chosen as the national simplex frequency. This was the highest wideband FM frequency available to technicians. After repeaters came along, amateurs discovered that the surplus commercial equipment in use had a maximum bandwidth of 600 kilohertz. Thus, 146.34 was chosen for the first repeater input. However, in areas where 9.4 was in heavy use by simplex stations, 146.76 was chosen as the output. This led to the problem of non-standard splits, and in some areas of the country, repeaters such as 3.476, 2.894, and 3.482 could be found. The frequency 146.94 was a battleground between the simplex versus repeater groups. Amateurs were also fighting a minor battle over 146.64 MHz, which in some parts of the country was a DX simplex frequency. To make matters worse, all transceivers back then were crystal controlled. With crystals at $10 per pair, 
it would cost $120 or about $350 in today's money to fill all 12 channels in a 2-meter radio. It was possible to equip your radio with the repeaters and simplex frequency used in one area, then find all of your channels were useless 200 miles away. A national plan was needed. The Texas VHF-FM Society proposed such a plan, which was described in the May 1972 issue of QST. In it, the repeater offset was standardized at 600 kilohertz, 146.94 and 146.64 became repeater outputs, 146.4 through 146.58 became simplex, and 146.52 was chosen as the national simplex frequency. In the 146 through 147 range, accessible to technicians and above, there were 13 repeater and 7 simplex channels. The 147 through 148 range, available only to generals and above, had 14 repeater and 6 simplex channels. Note that in the Texas plan, all repeater inputs were 600 kilohertz below the output, even in the 147 through 148 range. Except for changing the inputs to the high side above 147 megahertz, the Texas plan was adopted. The gradual acceptance of a 2-meter band plan still did not resolve the FCC issue. The Texas plan, as good as it was, violated the FCC's 1970 proposal. The Commission still had not issued any repeater rules, nor had they acted on the ARRL's 1969 request to give technicians the full 2-meter band. Finally, in September 1972, the FCC issued new rules covering repeaters, logging, and portable mobile operations. Liberal repeater subbands were authorized at 52 through 54, 146 through 148, 222 through 225, and 442 through 450 megahertz. Logging requirements, especially for repeater and mobile stations, was simplified. Repeater operators no longer needed a tape recorder hooked up to their stations. The requirement for a portable or mobile station to notify the FCC of operation in a particular radio district was also reduced. No longer would amateurs contemplating a cross-country trip with their radios have to write to each district on their journey in order to inform the engineer of the trip. Repeaters would have to be licensed. Call signs beginning with the prefix WR would be issued. The repeater license application was complex. Each applicant for a repeater license had to submit certain data to the FCC regarding the technical, operational, and effective radiated power of the proposed station. Whistle-on or tone control was no longer required. Two repeaters could be linked, but multi-linked or cross-band repeaters were prohibited. Repeater monitoring and control requirements were made more flexible. And finally, the FCC acted in part on the ARRL's 1969 proposal. Although they did not give technicians full 2-meter privileges, they did grant them the 147 through 148 segment. Technicians could now operate on all 2-meter repeaters without violating FCC rules. The new FCC repeater rules, coupled with the Texas plan, caused a surge in 2-meter FM activity. It also was the shot in the arm the hobby needed to fully recover from the decrease in growth caused by incentive licensing. Manufacturers such as Drake, 
Standard, Regency, Tempo, Genève, Clegg, and Midland poured rigs onto the amateur market. Heathkit had the very successful HW202, followed by the even more popular HW2036. The increase in the number of technicians on 2-meter FM finally killed the technicians are experimenters, not communicators theory. And finally, thanks to 2-meter FM, amateur radio grew by over 33% in the 1970s. In 1975, due to increased demand, the FCC authorized the use of 144.5 through 145.5 megahertz for repeater operation. Technicians were given access to this subband. In 1978, the FCC relaxed the rules, eliminated the separate repeater license and the WR prefix, and gave technicians the full 2-meter band. From 1978 through 1981, the synthesized revolution took place as affordable PLL and microprocessor rigs drove the last of the crystal-controlled radios off the market. Today, a name brand 2-meter HT costs about $175. With it, you can access over 4,000 repeaters or scan the VHF high band. Compare that to 1972, when a crystal-controlled radio equipped with 12 channels cost about $300, or about $800 in today's dollars. We truly have come a long way. In our next installment, we will look at a couple of license proposals in the mid-1970s and the controversy they caused. I hope you will join me. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. We have an update on the proposed FCC fee structure for the amateur radio service. As you may know by now, amateur radio licensees would pay a $50 fee for each amateur radio license application if the FCC adopts rules it proposed a few weeks ago. Included in the FCC's fee proposal are applications for new licenses, renewal and upgrades to existing licenses, and vanity call sign requests. Excluded are applications for administrative updates, such as changes of address and annual regulatory fees. The FCC proposal is contained in a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM, in MD Docket 20-270, which was adopted to implement portions of the Repack Airwaves Yielding Better Access for Users of Modern Services Act of 2018, or as it is better known, the Ray Bombs Act. The Act requires that the FCC switch from a congressionally mandated fee structure to a cost-based system of assessment. In its NPRM, the FCC proposed application fees for a broad range of services that use the FCC's universal licensing system, including the amateur radio service, that had been excluded by an earlier statute. 
The 2018 statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. Applications for personal licenses are mostly automated and do not have individualized staff costs for data input or review, the FCC said in its NPRM. For those automated processes, new or major modifications, renewal and minor modifications, we propose a nominal application fee of $50 due to automating the processes, routine ULS maintenance, and limited instances where staff input is required. The same $50 fee would apply to all amateur service applications, including those for vanity call signs. Although there is currently no fee for vanity call signs in the amateur radio service, we find that such applications impose similar costs in aggregate on commission resources as new applications and therefore propose a $50 fee, the commission said. The FCC is not proposing to charge for administrative updates, such as mailing address changes for amateur applications, and amateur radio will remain exempt from annual regulatory fees. For administrative updates and modifications, which also are highly automated, we find that it is in the public interest to encourage licensees to update their own information without a charge, the Commission said. The FCC also proposes to assess a $50 fee for individuals who want a printed copy of their license. The Commission has proposed to eliminate these services, but to the extent the Commission does not do so, we propose a fee of $50 to cover the costs of these services, the FCC added. The Ray Bombs Act does not exempt filing fees in the amateur radio service. The FCC dropped assessment of fees for vanity call signs several years ago. ARRL is reviewing the matter and intends to file comments in opposition. Comments are being accepted on the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270, which proposes application fees for radio amateurs. Formal deadlines for comments and reply comments will be determined once the NPRM appears in the Federal Register. Comments may be filed now, however, by using the FCC's electronic comment filing system, posting to MD docket number 20-270. The docket is already open for accepting comments, even though deadlines have not yet been set. Opinions thus far for a newly proposed amateur radio fee structure, according to the NPRM in the Ray Bombs Act in the FCC's electronic comment filing system, have included numerous arguments against the fee, saying it would deter young people and keep ham radio out of the reach of retirees and low-income applicants. A Michigan amateur wrote, however, that he considered the proposal reasonable, suggesting a fee waiver for individuals younger than 18. The Valley Amateur Radio Association in Virginia suggested fees of no more than $15 for initial licenses and modifications and a waiver for operators active in emergency communications and community events. One ham wrote from North Carolina, I am in favor of a fee if the fees will be used to strengthen enforcement. If the fees are just going to go into the Treasury, then what's the purpose? The FCC calls the fees cost-based. Will Wickwist, the FCC's Associate Director of Media Relations, said that in addition to its automated system, the FCC also employs a special temporary authority for personal licenses. 
using such non-automated agency resources as analyst review and process and engineer technical reviews. He said the process cost is about $135. Scientists at the Air Force Research Laboratory in New Mexico have discovered a new way to track and characterize sporadic E, which occurs when large structures of dense plasma form naturally in the upper atmosphere. These plasma structures, which can occur at mid-latitude locations around the world, can affect radio wave propagation in both positive and negative ways. Ken Obenberger, a research scientist at the laboratory, said, quote, Previous methods to observe these structures were insufficient for identifying and tracking the structures over large regions. It would be advantageous to actively identify where these structures are, where they are going, and how dense they are. And we thought we could find a better way to do that, unquote. The new method, developed by Obenberger and collaborators at the laboratory and at the University of New Mexico, leverages unintentional RF emissions from power lines and uses broadband radio noise with which they can map and track dense sporadic E structures. This kind of technology could be of interest to those who rely on HF and VHF frequencies, such as radio amateurs, mariners, broadcasters, and the military. Radio amateurs have long taken advantage of sporadic E for long-range communications in the VHF bands, such as 6 and 2 meters. Studying the climatology of sporadic E can provide a probability that it will occur, but the actual presence of sporadic E can only be determined through trial and error observations. Having accurate now-casting of sporadic E could provide crucial information during disaster situations where hams may play a key role in supporting communication of vital information. Nigel Vanderhoeven, K7NVH, reported on September 8th that some ham WAN users in the Puget Sound region of Washington who were viewing the network's camera feeds spotted a large brush fire. They reported it to the Department of Natural Resources, which thanked them for the first report they had received on the fire, and they sent a team to try and keep it small and under control. It's estimated currently at about 50 acres southeast of Enumclaw along Highway 410. The fire is not said to be threatening any homes. State Route 410 was reported closed between Unumclaw and Greenwater, and drivers headed to Mount Rainier National Park were advised to take another route. Ham One is a non-profit organization developing best practices for high-speed amateur radio data. It runs the Puget Sound Data Ring. So far, Ham One networks have been used for such applications as low-latency repeater linking, including DMR, real-time video feeds, APRSI gates, and provide redundant internet access to emergency operations centers and more. Amateur radio licensees in the Hamwon service area can connect directly to the network with a modest investment in equipment and no recurring cost. The Hamwon Puget Sound data ring has cells deployed at numerous wide area coverage sites interconnected with 5 gigahertz radios. The Hamwon technical team has been installing remotely controllable cameras at Hamwon link sites and one of these was used to report the wildfire. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
This is the ARRL propagation forecast for Friday, September 11th. We have an area in the sun's southern atmosphere that is trying to be a sunspot, trying be the operative word. By the time you hear this, it will have graduated into a full sunspot or it will have vanished. There's been a slight bump in the solar index as a result, but not much to get excited about. We have a blast of solar wind due to arrive by early next week. The impacts on the HF band shouldn't be great, however, but it may disrupt some bands above 40 meters. On VHF and UHF, this weekend is the ARRL September VHF contest, and it looks like operators in the Midwest may want to keep an eye out for tropo openings on 2 meters and up. 6 meters has been fairly quiet in most areas, but even in mid-September, it can still pop open when you least expect it. Bruce Page, KK5DO, reminds listeners about the challenge of earning the ARRL VHF UHF Century Club Award for satellite contacts. To get started, you need to work stations in 100 different Maidenhead grid squares. This month, there are a few newcomers to the VUCC Club. Those earning their first 100 or more grids from the September list are, in alphabetical order, DF2ET, K0JM, K1PAD, K5TA, KI4ASK, KO4AQF, KX9X, NA1ME, PP2RON, and WA8ZID. And if you think getting started with 100 grids is a task, K8YSE just hit 1,935 grids. To make it a bit more fun chasing grids, there are a number of hams who are traveling around the states, and they'll stop and give out some grid squares. And if you're lucky, they will be on a grid boundary or a four-corner grid. Listen for announcements of these grid expeditions in audio news. Foundations of Amateur Radio In my ongoing software explorations, I've discussed that software-defined radio, or SDR, is a fundamentally different way of dealing with radio. It's been in use across non-amateur circles for decades. Your mobile phone has an SDR on board, for example. The original term of digital receiver was coined in 1970. Software radio was coined in 1984. And in 1991, Joe Mitola reinvented the term software radio for a planned mobile phone base station. So this idea has been around for half a century. And in amateur radio, this idea is also catching on. You can buy a few pure SDR devices today, some hybrid ones, or you can begin to experiment in a more indirect manner using your traditional radio and a computer. One of the things that sets this idea of a software-defined radio apart from anything we've done so far is that the bulk of the signal processing is done in software. That sounds obvious, but it's really not. One of the impacts of this idea is that you can improve your radio communications by either writing better software or by using a faster computer. Unless you write software for a living, these things aren't immediately obvious. So let me explain. Imagine that you've written software that detects beeps in a particular slice of audio spectrum that's being fed to your application. As you write better software to detect those beeps, you get a better digital mode, one with a better chance of being decoded. Or using radio terms, it has a better signal-to-noise ratio. If that's not a familiar term, signal-to-noise ratio is a measure that describes the difference between a wanted signal and the background noise. Higher signal-to-noise means that you can better distinguish between the two. 
If you stand in a room full of people talking and you use your hands to cup your ears towards the person you want to hear, you've increased the signal-to-noise ratio and your chance of understanding them has improved. As you write this software, it gains complexity. As you deal with more maths, more samples, more tests, you end up running out of time to make your decoder return a relevant answer. There's no point in having a real-time signal being decoded late. If it were to take, say, 10 seconds to decode one second of audio, then the next second would be 20 seconds late, and the one after that would be 30 seconds late. That's where a faster computer comes in. If you have the ability to do more maths, or do the same maths at a higher resolution, you will essentially improve the reception of your radio without ever needing to change your antenna, or anything on the circuit board. Think of it in another way. Imagine that your tool has access to 2.3 kHz of audio. It's the equivalent of a single sideband audio stream. If you break that down into 23 chunks of 100 Hz each, you can deal with the average of 100 Hz of audio for each calculation. If you have a faster computer, you might be able to break that down into 230 chunks of 10 Hz each, or 2300 chunks of 1 Hz. So instead of doing calculations across 23 chunks of audio, you're doing it across 2300 chunks. Why is this significant, you might ask? Well, in a traditional radio you get one byte at the cookie. You get to design and build your circuit and then package and sell it. The end result is something like my FT-857D. It does what it does well, but it will never get any better. However, if I plug that same radio into my computer, I can extract the audio and do stuff with it. If I get a faster computer, I can do more stuff. I don't have to change my radio, or my antenna, or even my shack. Most of the time I run a different application and I get a different result. I will point out that I'm deliberately ignoring where and how the RF gets to the computer, or where that computer actually is, or what operating system it's running, since none of those things matter to get an understanding of how changing software can change the performance of your radio. I've said this before and I'll say it again, the SDR earthquake will change our hobby forever. Before I go, I'm not for a minute suggesting that your current radio is obsolete. If it were legal, a spark gap transmitter could still exchange information today. But if you want to explore what might be just over the horizon, going down the SDR path by connecting your radio to your computer is a really nice place to start. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. The Citrus Belt Amateur Radio Club will sponsor its 21st Route 66 on the Air special event September 12th through the 20th, with 21 stations each using a one-by-one -one call sign, specifically W6A through W6U, and operating from cities along the highway. Route 66 is famous in American history as the major highway from the east to the west coast and is associated with American car culture as with the vintage Route 66 television program. To celebrate their club's 50th anniversary, members of the Texas DX Society will operate K5DX-50 September 14th through October 13th on CW. SSB, and FT8 on 160 through 10 meters. Also in September, VE3NOO will operate special event station XM3A to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And finally, members of the London, Ontario Amateur Radio Club will use the call sign VE3LON100 until the end of September to mark the centennial of the club, one of the oldest amateur radio clubs in Canada. 
There are many conventional ways to promote amateur radio. Workshops, ham fests, YouTube videos, and of course, Elmering. But how about a ham radio channel on the Roku Digital Media Player? As the administrator and creator of Ozark Digital, a digital ham radio network based in Arkansas, Curtis N9INK is always looking for ways hams can expand their reach. Hoping to promote the hobby across generations and even geography through creative television programming, he has secured a channel on the Roku streaming player. The non-commercial channel is called Amateur Radio Today, and Curtis is looking to provide viewers with free content, ultimately around the clock, on anything and everything amateur radio related. Curtis said that what he needs now are more programs. He has a few pre-recorded videos already up there to get things started, but he's hoping to fill the schedule of the Amateur Radio Today channel with how-to videos, interviews, discussions, and maybe down the line, a live feed from a de-expedition whenever that may be technically possible. Subject matter can range from digital operation and hotspots to boat anchors. There are, of course, technical requirements. Video should be in high-definition MP4 format. All content must be reviewed by him first. He said that live feeds are also possible, but will be carried with a three-minute delay. Amateurs interested in providing content should write him at curtg49 at yahoo.com. That's curtg49 at yahoo.com. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. Climbing with others. There are times when tower jobs we need to do require helpers assisting us on the ground and with us on the tower. These are special situations which require higher than normal levels of communication between team members. When hauling coax, antennas, sidearms, or other hardware up the tower, Never hoist hardware up the tower with someone underneath the cargo, unless they're wearing the proper safety gear and have been trained in tower work. Let's face it, on a tower, you don't get a second chance. There are at least three sides to each tower. So keep the lower climber on a different side, and besides, a freestanding tower is happier when you spread the load more evenly. So before you start to do tower work with other climbers and ground crew, stop, take a moment, and discuss with everyone exactly what you intend to do the goals to accomplish, the order the tasks will be done in, special hardware you may need, and a discussion about hoisting things up and down the tower. The guy on the ground should always have the job of keeping sidewalk supervisors away from the base area of the tower. Even a quarter twenty zinc plated nut falling 80 feet onto the top of an unprotected skull can leave a permanent dent, not to mention a thud that will be ringing for hours in the victim's head. There's a good argument here for wearing a hard hat. Few hams I know of own one or even know where to buy one, so the next best thing is only one person climbing at a time. If climbing with a person already strapped on working above you, choose a different side to climb on. If you're already on the tower, but the antenna you need to work on is like six feet out on a sidearm, 
a different set of rules apply. It is most likely that the sidearm is fully capable of holding your weight as is. My personal rule is to never totally trust any part of the tower. This includes sidearms. So I bring along my trusty 15-foot strap. This yellow strap is very lightweight but fully capable of pulling a snowbound car out of a ditch. I attach one end of this strap to my harness and the other to a tower leg about five feet or more above the point where the sidearm mounts. This strap is strong enough to catch the full weight of the sidearm, myself, and my cargo. If you're expecting to work on a sidearm, I strongly recommend you invest in one of these rescue type straps. Copy down my URL at the end of this segment if you don't know where to start looking for this type of information. Not only did I want this series to offer safety tips, I also wanted to offer hints to make the job go faster and easier. The way I figure, an easier climb is bound to be a safer climb. So let's cover a couple of quick hints. For your tower work, attach them to a short piece of fishing line. Use the woven multi-filament type. Make it long enough to tie a wrist strap in the other end. And tie the other end to the tool you don't wish to drop. If you have a friend with a leather working hobby, a good Christmas present would be a whole bunch of these straps. You can keep your tools securely on your arm and in your hand with one of these straps. Remember to order them large enough to fit around your arm when you're wearing cold weather climbing gear. Another one of my favorites is my coaxial cable hanger. I bent the hook in a piece of reinforcing steel bar, the type used in concrete work and often sold at hardware stores. I bent a squared hook in one end, about 3 inches over and 5 inches back down, sort of like a giant fishing hook. I use electrical tape to hold the coax onto the rod that I'm bringing up the tower as I climb. I secure about 2 feet of the coax to the rod. As I climb, I reach down, grab the hook and lift it to a tower rung up as high as I can reach. Don't forget a short piece of rope to secure the coax hook to a loop on your climbing belt just in case you might drop it. Some people like to lift coax after they get to the antenna that it connects to. I've had problems with coax damage doing it this way, so this has worked fine for me. I stretch out the coax on the ground and the crew helps feed it up to me as I climb further. This would probably not work on very long lengths and may be unnecessary on shorter towers. Remember, any time you spend learning about tower safety is an investment in yourself. Education is a big part of tower safety. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The September edition of the North American CW Sprint, sponsored by the National Contest Journal, is this weekend. The often frantic four-hour event gets underway on Sunday, September 13th at 0-hundred UTC. That's Saturday, September 12th in the North American time zones. CW Sprints take place twice a year, in September and February. RTTY Sprints are in March and September. The CW Sprint can seem intimidating, particularly the first couple of times with its loud signals and high code speed. But there are some secrets to getting the hang of things, said veteran contester and contest manager Ward Silver N0AX. A unique feature of the CW Sprint is the QSY rule, which rewards operating agility as much as signal strength. Big gun stations can't sit on a single frequency racking up contacts, and more modest stations can make that work in their favor. Participation in the year's CW contests has been on the upswing as people are staying home due to the pandemic, Silver added, noting that the September contest 
offers some solid practice ahead of the various fall contests, especially the ARRL November sweepstakes. Silver notes that band conditions during the September sprint are an incentive for operators to put more emphasis on 20 meters than in the February sprint, since sunset is much later in September. We will also be just a week from the equinox, a time when conditions are usually pretty good on 20 and 40 meters, he pointed out. 80 meters will be less noisy than in midsummer, and if the thunderstorms take a day off, we can expect coast-to-coast activity. Silver urged sprint veterans to encourage fellow hams and club members to give it a try. Teams are fun too, especially for new contesters and contest club members, he noted. For the sprint and for other national contest journal-sponsored events, teams are self-organized and often numerously named groups of operators who compile individual scores under a single entity. Teams do not have to be associated with formal clubs. The QSY rule can be daunting for newcomers. In short, a station calling CQ on a new clear frequency may work one responding station on that frequency and then must move at least 5 kHz before calling CQ again, and at least 1 kHz before initiating another contact, either by calling CQ or by responding to another station. The responding station inherits the initial frequency. The exchange is both call signs, a consecutive serial number, name and state, province, DX. Listening stations can tell which station in a contact to call by listening to call sign placement in the exchange, as Silver describes in Conversation, having fun in the North American CW Sprint, in the September 2nd issue of the ARRL Contest Update. Sprint newcomers may also want to read the article, Sprints, the Indy 500 of Radio Sport, by Jim George, N3BB, in the February 2019 issue of QST. The online article, the Sprint Survival webpage, by Tree Tyree, N6TR, is a helpful tutorial on the ins and outs of the National Contest Journal Sprint. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The ARRL Board of Directors has named James W. Brown, K9YC of Santa Cruz, California, as the recipient of the 2020 ARRL Technical Service Award. The board cited Brown's frequent contributions to and presentations at amateur radio forums, at conventions including Dayton Hamvention, Pacificon, and the International DX and Contesting Convention in Visalia, California. He also has collaborated with the ARRL Lab, contributed to various ARRL publications, including the Handbook, the Antenna Book, and others, and shared his technical and educational expertise in the fields of audio engineering, RFI, and other aspects of electronics and engineering. Brown shares his knowledge and expertise with the amateur radio community via his informational website. The board said Brown continues to provide his expertise as a means of giving back to the amateur community in the spirit of the amateurs that worked with him 
when he was first licensed at the age of 13. A balloon experiment by Warsaw University of Technology is planned to lift off on September 12th, carrying a unique, very low-frequency, 210-meter-long, fully airborne antenna system and a transmitter on 14.2 kilohertz, the former frequency of the Babica transatlantic radio station in Poland, which played an important wartime role relaying messages to the German submarines in the Atlantic. The project is to gather data for a doctoral dissertation, and any and all feedback on the reception of the signal is important. The balloon will lift off in the early afternoon from Zrozhnish Airport. The flight is set to last about three hours, with the balloon reaching a maximum altitude of 30 kilometers above sea level. The emission will be A1 narrowband carrier. Operation will start on the ground with the antenna unfolding as the balloon ascends. Additional radio navigation signals. 144.800 MHz APRS call sign SP5AXL, the call sign assigned to the Heritage Park Society, the old Babitza radio station. The VLF antenna center-fed half-folded vertical dipole with both capacitive and inductive loading. Amateur radio volunteers provide the ARRL Maryland DC section with situational awareness and breaking information on September 3rd as severe weather, including at least one tornado, hit the region around the nation's capital. ARRL Maryland DC section manager Marty Pittinger, KB3XMM, said the section staff and hams across Maryland joined a section-wide Echolink Watch DC node and linked repeaters to report situational awareness as the eastern half of the state and Washington, D.C. were hit hard. Hams began reporting severe weather, sharing local situations across several two-meter sky-worn nets, including W3ICF-R near Frederick, Maryland, and KA2JAI-R in Anne Arundel County. These repeaters are also linked through Washington, D.C. to extend the reach of critical information. For more than three hours, the nets reported on wind damage, power outages, flooding, and the impact to traffic across six Maryland counties. Several Maryland County Emergency Management Agencies were at heightened activation levels. Section-wide ARIES was used in monitoring mode, and no ARIES activations were requested by those served agencies. Bill Fight, NG3K, in Kensington, said his town was under a tornado watch for several hours. At one point, it went to warning of a tornado heading his way, said Fight. I expect, suspect the call that we were warned was about a rotating wall cloud and a funnel that never reached the ground, but since there is little appreciable damage in our media area, but that system was definitely a nail-biter. The storms traveled more than 80 miles across Maryland, with one passing north of D.C., spawning a brief tornado in Edgemere, not far from the U.S. Naval Academy. Another storm crossed over into Baltimore. Earlier that day, the Maryland, D.C. section and Aries leadership collaborated to plan a course of action. The section emergency coordinator, Jim Montgomery, WB3KAS, notified AREAS teams of the approaching storms. Section leadership released information via social media and email. The timeliness, wide area coverage, interoperability with selected VHF and UHF repeaters, coupled with numerous hams in affected areas, provided the best ground, said Pittenger. The candidates for the 2020 ARRL division elections are now official. Unfortunately, incorrect information regarding electronic balloting in ARRL division elections was disseminated in the Midwest division. ARRL does not use electronic voting. 
The only way to cast a vote is by U.S. Postal Service mail. We urge you to participate by casting and mailing your ballot. Ballots accompanied by a photograph and a 300-word document, if provided from each candidate, will be mailed out to members by October 1st. If you do not receive your ballot by October 16th, contact Carla Pereira, KC1HSX, at C-P-E-R-E-I-R-A at ARRL.org. That's C-P-E-R-E-I-R-A at ARRL.org. Completed ballots are due back at ARRL headquarters no later than noon Eastern Time on Friday, November 20th, 2020. And finally this week, New Scientist magazine reports in its August 22nd issue that researchers in Paris have discovered the growth of plant seedlings was faster after they subjected the seedlings to frequencies in the 40-meter band. The researchers from the Sorbonne University found that RF pulses at 7 MHz altered a type of biological protein receptor that controls plant growth rates in seedlings, making them grow faster than normal. The researchers say similar biological receptors occur across insects, birds, and other animals too, including humans. These receptors have roles not only in growth rates, but also in regulating biological clocks, or in birds navigating by Earth's magnetic field. This is the first time that radio signals have been found to affect biological receptors, and it has implications around whether life itself could be impacted by radio frequency energy. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on amateur radio repeater systems, streaming on the internet, or on great low-power FM broadcast stations like WGXC-FM, part of the Wave Farm on 90.7 MHz in Accra, New York, serving Greene County and the southern regions of New York's Capital District. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.